Good morning, Church of the Cross. I am delighted to be with you today. And yes, indoors. The last time I was here, it was freezing and windy. It was blowing all over. And this time I got to preach in the rain. And I loved it. So anytime you have bad weather, I'll show up. A few nights ago, a friend of mine came over to hang out on my porch. And being the phenomenal friend that she is, she readily humored me when I invited her to play an improv game. Uh, I have a not-so-secret fascination with improv, and we spent a little time playing What Else Could This Be? It's simple enough. You can play at home later. You take an everyday object, and you ask the question, what else could this be? I brought out this kid's floaty. I thought about saying floaty, puddle jumper, but I don't know that that would have done it justice, so I brought the real deal. I brought this out, and we asked that question. And here were some of our favorite responses. One was that it was Chewy's new platter for chips, and there are two kinds of salsa. My husband Drew added that it was a seafood salsa, which was repugnant to me. <laughs> I thought maybe it's the latest from a line of Property Brothers tool belts. And my favorite that my friend offered was that it's a hat for a dog who's lost its ears and is feeling self-conscious. What else could this be? Have you ever had a God ask that question to you? Have you ever taken up your stories the way you understand things, the assumed narratives of the world and of our communities, and has ever held one of them up for you and asked with a loving challenge, what else could this be? After Jesus was baptized by John, he was immediately, hair still wet from the River Jordan, immediately sent by God's Spirit to a desolate place, a place of testing. And then there's the news. The news that was probably both dreaded and expected, John has been arrested. Howard Thurman, a pastor, theologian, and civil rights leader, recalls in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, being a seminary student and attending a meeting of the student volunteer movement. A Korean woman who had been studying abroad in the States was asked to share her reflections on American education. This was around 1927, and at the time, Korea was occupied by Japan. He records her words. You have asked me to talk with you about my impression of American education, but there is only one thing that a Korean has any right to talk about, and that is freedom from Japan. Thurman recalls that for about 20 minutes, she made an impassioned plea for the freedom of her people, ending her speech with this sentence. If you see a little American boy and you ask him what he wants, he says, I want a penny to put in my bank or to buy a whistle or a piece of candy. But if you see a little Korean boy and you ask him what he wants, he says, I want freedom from Japan. Thurman reminds us that in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were just as single-minded Israel was occupied. The Roman Empire was inescapable in thought and daily life. 
And yet, here comes John, dressed like an old-timey prophet, preaching with power and calling people to return to God and be baptized. At the time, baptism was already a thing, but it was for people who were not Jewish and who were converting to Judaism. Someone who was ethnically Jewish would not be baptized because they were already considered insiders. But here is John telling his fellow Jews to be baptized, that they themselves need to convert, reconvert, and be prepared for what God is about to do. How would that go over? It's akin to telling a flag-draped American-born citizen that they need to go through the naturalization process. I suspect John offended some people, but here's the thing, many others responded from all over. The response was wild. There must have been a palpable sense that God was up to something. People were ready and willing to go out into the desert and be baptized. Can you imagine the excitement for these people who were born into occupation? Finally, something is happening. And then it's snuffed. Verse 14 tells us bluntly, John was put in prison. The empire strikes back. It squashes the prophet's ministry. And what felt like the speeding up of time for a people who had long waited suddenly feels like the clock has stopped. Progress was just an illusion. We're right back to where we were. Hope is snuffed out. But then there's that question. What else could this be? Rather than a stopped movement, rather than earthly might wins the day, we hear the voice of Jesus. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Even as the empire reasserts its dominion, its twisted version of good news, Jesus stands and proclaims another kingdom, another authority, another king, one that is of God himself, and it is at hand. This moment here in front of us isn't a roadblock. It's an unleashing. Is there part of our story, of your story, this morning that feels like it's at a dead end? Is there anywhere that feels like the fleeting flicker of hope has been extinguished, where resignation may be winning the day? Our God sees. You know, not only did God see John imprisoned, he knew that there was even greater hardship and injustice ahead for John. And even then, Jesus says in verse 15, now is the time the kingdom of God has drawn near. Jesus says, John may be in prison, but ask yourself, what else could this be? Because now is not a time for despair or fear, but of repentance and belief. Believe me, Jesus says to those around him, the kingdom news I bring is good news. It's good news for John, and it's good news for you. God saw the world the way it was, and in his what else could this be nature, he intervened and said, it's time. 
verse 16 continues, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James and son of Zebedee and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The most obvious, what else could this be of our passage comes in Jesus' invitation to Simon and Andrew. Fishermen are to become fishers of men. There are two things I want to highlight with this moment because these things are present in our stories too. First is the ordinariness of it. And second, the transformative power of it. Whatever we might say about the symbolic nature of what's going on in this part of the passage, what is actually happening in the scene, people going about their daily work in relative peace, is not dramatic. Though God can and does take the big, hard moments of John's arrest and ask what else can this be, he also took the mundane, the small, ordinary moment in ordinary people's lives, a moment void of precipitating crisis, and still asks, what else could this be? It's unclear what these men understood Jesus to mean. It's unclear to me. It's common to read this passage and see that he was asking them to become his disciples, like a rabbi of his time would. And it very well may be. And of course, having the rest of the story, we can speak to a larger intention. But it's also possible that they heard a teacher present a small, intriguing interruption. He said something interesting about them and invited them to knock off work early and come follow him into town before the Sabbath. The what else could this be questions from Jesus are asked in our small moments amidst the ordinary work of our days. A second thing to note about Jesus' words here are not just their creative reimagining, but their power. He doesn't just ask, what else could this be? He proclaims that it is or that it will be so. And here's the difference. I can call the puddle jumper a tool belt, but that doesn't make it a tool belt. It's fun, it's imaginative, but it doesn't make it so. Jesus is not only able to reimagine what is, he is able to transform it accordingly. The translation here can also be said as, I will make you become fishers of men. These proclamations, these claims, depend not on everyone to join in the grand imagination. They depend on the authority of Jesus to make it happen. And that is good news. There are times when we have no imagination. I love when God showed the prophet Ezekiel a vision of a vast valley of dry bones and asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? He asked Ezekiel, what else could this be? And Ezekiel was like, I don't know. Actually, he said, sovereign Lord, you alone know, which is, I think, a polite way of saying, why are you asking me? 
God then tells Ezekiel to speak to the bones. And when Ezekiel obeys, the bones come together, tendons, flesh forms. Here's what I love about this. None of what happened depended on Ezekiel having a clue. We get stuck. We get stuck in the way we see the world, in the way we see our own stories and the stories of those around us. We get stuck in our routines, our ways of being and habits of mind. We might doom scroll. We might oversimplify others in an attempt to not feel the tension of their complexity, in or out, good or bad. We, of course, have other besetting sins. And there are times when we get stuck through no fault of our own in what the world has dealt us, in pandemic, in job loss, systemic injustice, sins committed against us. We feel like we sleep among the bones. And we know, we are well aware that our imagination cannot save us. Jesus calling these men is good news. Good news, God interrupts the flow of things. Good news, it doesn't depend on their or our imagination. It doesn't depend on their or our power. Jesus has this creativity of mind, the vision to see what is and what could be. And Jesus has the authority, the creative power to call into being what must be. God enters the tense and the mundane moments of our lives and authoritatively reimagines them, reforms them. The kingdom of God has come near. I will make you into fishers of men. As we look at the whole of our passage today, we're left to consider this. What is being asked of us? Jesus' invitation, his call as he proclaims the good news in verse 15 to repent and believe, to turn away from buying into the narrative of the world at large, that the empire rules and that God is far away, and turn toward the kingdom of God that is now in front of you, that it may even live within you. It's beautiful and true, and yet can feel incredibly intangible. And then we read on and see it worked out more practically, not once, but twice. Two times Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee. Two times he sees. Two times he calls fishermen brothers. The repetition is like the black cat in the matrix, the deja vu that tells you something important is happening. In Jesus' call to these two sets of brothers, he issues the same call as before, but in another way. Repent and believe is spoken again as come and follow, leave and follow. We are being asked today to attend to the voice of Jesus. And as he draws near to us, as he sees us, as he calls to us to leave our laundry, to leave our emails, to leave our unholy peace or our unholy discontent, and to give him our attention and allegiance and whatever he asks. 
He may ask you today, through dirty toddler hands, to stop the work that feels so good and important and to give them goldfish. Come, follow me. He may ask you, through a freeze warning on your weather app, to not fret so much about the plants, but first remember the homeless. Come, follow me. He may ask you to leave the moment of relative peace and quiet and call that person that you are a breath away from cutting off entirely. Come, follow me. And he may ask you through worship today to not give up hope that you, that your life, and that the world, it's not as stuck as it may appear. His kingdom will reign. And even today, our world is being made different by his hand and through his love. Come, follow me, Jesus says. In what ways, Church of the Cross, is God asking for your attention and allegiance today? What might he be inviting you to leave and to follow him into? What dry bones might he be inviting you to speak to you? As we consider the moments when things are bleak or mundane, alongside God's, what else could this be? We cannot forget that the cross of Christ is history's greatest, what else could this be moment. That an instrument of torture, of shame, of humiliation, of despair and death could in fact be the instrument of salvation, could in fact play a part in the very conquering of death could instead be a pathway to honor and glory, could in fact be transformed into an icon of hope and of unending life. This is the God we love. The God to whom we can say, bid me follow and I will follow. The God who let his own body and his own blood be that which transforms the cross. It is from this God that we hear, repent and believe, come and follow, and later, take up your cross and follow. Whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus and his good news will save it. Whoever resists the flow of the world in order to hear and follow Jesus will be transformed. Today, may we repent and believe May we be interrupted by God in ways both small and large, real and symbolic, leaving behind what is and following him, following Jesus into his great, what else could this be? Let us pray. Lord, we ask for you to speak. For us to hear your voice, Lord, would you ready us just like you used John the Baptist to prepare people, ready us now to say yes, to leave and follow you into whatever you ask. When we feel our hearts pricked to put aside the flow of our day, our momentum and our mood, and embrace you and your call to us. Lord, you see Church of the Cross. You see each person and you see the community. God, you see with the eyes of love, with eyes of compassion, the beauty and the complexity 
the places where there's forward movement, where there's backward movement, and where there's still waters. Lord, we ask in your wisdom, in your power, and in your goodness, what else could this be? Bid us follow, and we will follow. Amen.